We're in Romans, so welcome uh, to week two, and uh, happy Valentine's Day. Uh, welcome to those of you that are on the, on the stream. We have probably more on the stream than usual, folks that, uh, uh, especially UMass students that are quarantined this week, and uh, we want to continue in this, in this great book. Um, we learned last week that uh, Romans was written by Apostle Paul, and that he wrote it to uh, the Christians in Rome, which from what we can gather from the last chapter of Romans is like a network of house churches. And uh, these Christians are very diverse and somewhat divided. We can tell that from places like Romans 14, where Paul deals with some of uh, their division. And we said that uh, Paul needed something to uh, unify these Christians, which is one of the reasons, not the only reason, but one of the reasons he's writing this book is he needs something that has enough power to unify a very diverse and divided church. And we said that that thing that has that kind of power is the gospel. It's the gospel. This is what Romans is all about. It's this very thorough treatment of the theology of the gospel. So if you want to know what Christians mean whenever they say the gospel, Romans is a good spot to go uh, to really uh, thoroughly investigate uh, that. And I think when we, when we hear power talked about, uh, it brings up some questions, especially in our current kind of cult, cultural context. One is we want to know who is going to benefit from that power, right? If, if there's power, uh, then we, we immediately think winners and losers, and who's going to be the winner and who's going to be the loser. Uh, we also want to know how is that power going to be displayed. If, if uh, someone or some government or some organization has power, how are you going to use that power? And then thirdly, we start to think, well, how can I benefit? Is there a way for me to benefit from that power, and if so, how? So this is really the three things that we want to look at as we look at this text that talks about the gospel being the power of God. So who can benefit from this power? And again, as I said before, this is an important question for us because we see power as a zero-sum game, that there's going to be some who benefit, some constituencies that are going to benefit from power. There's going to be other constituencies that are going to be adversely affected by the, the power that's being displayed. Uh, we saw this kind of talk in the presidential election, right? The general pitch is, vote for me, and when I'm president, I will use my power to help you. And the candidate that can convince the most people that they will use their power to help those people, they're the ones that get voted in. And so candidates reach out to different kinds of of people, to rich and poor, to black and white, to men and women, to educated and uneducated. And they talk about speaking to their base and expanding their base. That's what they're, they're, they're talking about. How, how do I convince more people that I'm going to use my power to help them? And as we listen to those candidates, we think, which candidate, candidate is going to put me in the winner column? This doesn't seem to be the way that the Apostle Paul thinks about gospel power. Look, look at Romans 1.14. He says, I'm under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, so I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. 
Uh, Paul says, I'm obligated to offer the gospel to the Greek and the barbarian, the wise and the foolish. Um, this barbarian word, I mean, we still use this word, uh, but in, in Paul's day, it would have been a term used for a foreigner, someone who speaks a language that is unintelligible to the local, uh, the, the, the local Greek uh, people. And so this, this term, or having terms for insiders and outsiders, is something that seems to be pretty natural for uh, human beings. And so for the Greeks, it was Greeks and barbarians, but, but for the Jews, it was Jews and Gentiles. That Gentile word is their word for non-Jews. And that's usually what Paul uses when he's talking about all of humanity. He'll say Jew and Gentile. But Romans is written to a primarily Gentile audience, a, a non-Jewish audience, and so he uses their terms and says Greek and barbarian. But he also says wise and foolish. Uh, definitely in the Greco-Roman world, you wanted to be in the wise category. <laughs> and he says, yeah, 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 I'm, I'm here for you wise people. I'm here for the foolish people too. And in our own culture, we, we have language for insiders and outsiders. I think our, our, our mind probably goes initially to, to racial terms, but there's all kinds of other terms as well that designate insiders and outsiders. Southerners call people from the north Yankees. I don't know if you knew that. They still do. They still do. When I'm down south and I'm in churches, they go, well, how are those Yankees up there? Right? Insiders and outsiders. Northerners might call people from the south rednecks. Uh, conservatives might call progressives uh, left-wing radicals or Marxists, while progressives called conservatives right-wing extremists or bigots. We all have our way of, 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 of saying who's insider, who's an outsider. I mean, a New England football fan might call Tampa Bay the worst team ever. And Tampa Bay fans might call them the New England Patriots the best team. Oh, wait a minute. That, that got switched last week. Never mind. Um, scratch that. Um, but every culture seems to have this kind of insider-outsider language, including the first century uh, Romans. And so Paul says, I see it as my responsibility to bring the gospel to Greeks and barbarians, to the wise and the foolish, to the north and the south, to the conservative and the progressive, to Patriot fans and Tampa Bay fans. And so who can benefit from this power? Everyone. Everyone. It's not a zero-sum game. This power is being offered as a benefit to everyone, even to the Romans. It's interesting how he says this, where he's like, I'm here for Greek and barbarian and for wise and foolish, and even you Romans. <laughs> come on, get you some gospel too. Come on in. You can, you can come too. It's, it's very humbling if you think about it. Like you're telling me that I need something that a barbarian needs, that a foolish person needs? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Everybody needs what this gospel is powerfully offering you. I remember when I was a, a youth pastor, and I would take, uh, this is, I was in Austin, Texas, and then I would take some of the teens from our youth group down to uh, volunteer in a soup kitchen. And the first time you took a group that, that had never been before, the orientation was always the same. And I, I loved doing this, and I usually didn't tell the kids that this was going to happen, 
But the, the guy who ran uh, the soup kitchen would have them stand in line with the homeless and get food with the homeless and sit down at the tables with the homeless and, and, and spend the first hour basically having lunch with the homeless. And it, and it was an incredibly humbling but, but also very powerful experience just to, to, to be alongside those that you were about to serve. And I remember this one kid, Curtis, he was like, I'm not doing that. And I was like, oh, come on, Curtis. And I took, it, took him out on the sidewalk, and I was like, let's, let's talk about this. Like, come on, you can do this. Like, you, and he, he absolutely refused. He's like, no, I'm not eating that food. I'm not going to sit down with those people. Now, he's a teenager. Let's give him a break. But it, 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 it caused me to, to think about my own heart, my own soul, and my own lack of humility. That I, I need grace just like anyone else, right? And, and, and so this is this, this idea that, that Paul is starting to, to communicate, and he's going to continue to communicate this, that you all need this gospel. You all are in desperate need, and you should humble yourself before God and receive it. Now, another important question is, okay, so how is this power being displayed? You're saying this power can benefit everyone. How can it be displayed? Because we know power can be used for good, can be used... For bad, I mean, our culture tends to mistrust power. Whenever a powerful person is exposed as abusing their power, we kind of add that to the evidence. Yeah, yeah, well, that's what I thought. Powerful people, that's what they do, right? And this kind of of thinking causes us uh, to reject anything that smacks of hierarchy because immediately when you talk about power, you're talking about a power differential. You're talking about some sort of of a hierarchy. And we don't like that. We're allergic to that in our current culture. But there is a hierarchy. There is a power differential. There is one who has absolute power. There is one who has no check. He has no balance. And that's God. That's God. He has absolute power. Now, how does this God, how does He display His power Many ways, many ways, but, but, but the one that is the most powerful, the most impressive, uh, the most glory-producing for Him, the most good for all of us and the entire universe is He displays that power in the gospel. It is the power of God. I mean, Paul, Paul is literally saying the gospel is the power of God. He wants you to, to, to understand that this display of power in the gospel, that this is the most glorious and the most good display. Look, look at verse uh, 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. This power is, is being displayed in the gospel, and the way that he describes what's happening in the, in the gospel, one of the words he uses is the power for salvation. Soteria. If you ever heard the theological uh, word soteriology, it's the study of sal- the doctrine of salvation, right? And so the power is being displayed for salvation. Um, this, this is the most important, the most glorious way that he is displaying power, is in rescuing us, right? And this is what we want powerful people to do. We want them to use their power to rescue those that have no power. And this is what God 
is doing. Back in the 90s, there was a, a, a story, a, a miraculous story, really, about this little girl named Carly uh, in Moose Jaw, Canada. And uh, she uh, was two years old, and her dad worked the graveyard shift, and she, uh, he got up to, to go to work, and uh, she often would, would wake up as well, and she would be up at you know midnight and talking to her dad, and uh, dad would tuck her in with mom in and, and bed, and, and then dad would leave for work. And so on this particular evening, uh, Carly was up, she was up with dad, and dad put her in the bed, and dad left for work. And then several minutes later, Carly decided, I'm going to go find dad. And so she gets up, unbeknownst to mom, she gets the front door open, she goes outside, door shuts behind her, and she's on the front porch, and it's negative eight degrees. No one knows little Carly's out there. So six hours later, mom discovers Carly on the front porch. She brings her in. She tries to do CPR. Um, I mean, she's just, she's just frozen. She calls the ambulance. She calls a couple of friends who are nurses. She calls her husband. She lets her husband know, I think our daughter's dead, pretty sure. Um, and then nurses come that are friends from next door. They start to wrap her up in blankets. They start doing CPR. Paramedics arrive. Paramedics start doing CPR. Uh, they start trying to warm her. They call uh, the, the emergency room, and they say, we've got to get a doctor. And they tell, they tell the emergency room, we need a doctor to pronounce this child dead. They roll little Carly into the emergency room right before the doctor, and she stands there, and right, right when, the, when the little girl comes in, she gasps for, for a breath. And the doctor says, we're going to try to bring her back. And so for the next several hours, this doctor, two heart surgeons, uh, 20 other personnel work on Carly to bring her back to life. And this is, this is a picture of Carly now. And she did. She lost a leg. She has some vascular things. She had several surgeries. But she's living a fairly normal life. She's married. She's, she's got two kids. Uh, no cognitive uh, disabilities. Uh, they saved her. Those doctors that day, they saved her. So we're talking about salvation. <laughs> so we're talking someone's being saved. They're being rescued. But what is God saving us from? Actually, something worse than mere physical death. He's saving us from sin and sin's effects, which does include physical death, but includes much more. Includes much more, including an eternal separation from God because of our sin. And so Paul, start, starting next week when we get to verse 18, we'll, we'll start like thoroughly explaining sin and its effects and, and, and the paralyzing destruction that it wreaks in humanity. And, 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 and he wants us to, to see that. He wants us to see how desperate we are and how much in need we are of a rescue because part of our predicament is we don't even need, no, we need a rescue. <laughs> We're frozen solid. We don't even know it. That's how badly we are, are in need of a rescue. So how is God doing this saving? Um, verse 17 gives us a little bit of a of a clue here. It says, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith 
for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So he's saying that in the gospel, the power of God is in the gospel. And what is God doing in that release of his power? He's saving. And as he's saving, he's revealing his righteousness. He's letting us know that God didn't save us on a whim. He didn't just wake up one day in a good mood. He had some extra power laying around. He's like, oh, I think I'll save some people. No, he's doing what's right. He's displaying his righteousness. And this is what he leads with. I think we would expect especially if you've grown up in the church in America, that he would lead with love. And it is Valentine's Day. Wouldn't that be great? The text talked about love. It doesn't talk about love. Now, he will talk about love, right? He, he mentioned it briefly in the, in the greeting in verse 7, but, but he's not really going to talk about love until he gets to chapter 5 in Romans. He doesn't lead with love. We would always lead with love, right? It, 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 why not talk about, but, but he talks about his righteousness. He's, what he's displaying in the salvation that He's working out for sinners like you and me, He's displaying His righteousness. And again, what is righteousness? What does it mean, the, the righteousness of God? Um, on the surface, we say, well, that, that means God is doing what's right. And that would be true. But then when you think about it, if someone's doing right, they've got some kind of standard by which they're being measured, right? If, if, if something's right or wrong, there's some sort of standard. What's God's standard? It's Himself, he is right, and He does right. That's how righteous He is. He is the standard of righteousness, and He always acts consistently with that standard of righteousness. His being and His doing are right. And Paul's saying that's what we see when we see God working out powerfully this salvation uh, for humanity. It, it, it's like this, the, the doctor, when she stood there with Carly that day, uh, she was a doctor. And when she saw that child gasp for breath, she then did what a doctor should do. And that was to try to save Carly. Her being and her doing were absolutely consistent. But how is he working out this salvation? So if there's this good news that God is revealing His righteousness by accomplishing this salvation. How is He doing that? And what I want to say is stay tuned for the next few ver- uh, sermons, and we'll get to chapter 3, and I'll give you the punchline. But I don't want you to leave here without the punchline. So we're going to run to chapter 3, and we're going to look briefly at this passage, because this is where he's headed to explain how he's displaying the righteousness of God. Romans 3.24, he says, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, there's a lot in that passage, and you may be saying, I don't know what propitiation is, what does this mean, what does that mean? It's okay, we'll get there and we'll talk about it when we get to this sermon. But at, at, the, at just the kind of basic level, he's saying that God is displaying His righteousness at the cross. It's at the cross of Christ. 
He's displaying His righteousness. Two overarching truths about the righteousness of God are being displayed at the cross. One is God must judge sin. He must. Human beings are under condemnation for their sin, and rightly so. God is a just judge. And so, so that, that sin has to be paid for. And Christ is paying for that sin at the cross. He is a substitute for us. Therefore, God is just. Right? That is one of the truths that's being communicated there. And He must justify sinners. That is the other thing that's happening at the cross. Right? Sin is being dealt with, but also something is being dealt with such that He can offer justification to those who are not righteous, like you and me. And so when God is doing that, He's displaying His righteousness at the cross. Uh, John Stott, who uh, one of the commentaries that I'm using for uh, this uh, preaching series, he says this, the righteousness of God is God's just justification of the unjust. His righteous way of pronouncing the unrighteous righteous, in which He both demonstrates His righteousness and gives righteousness to us. So see those two things woven together where He is being a righteous judge, but then He's also justifying sinners like you and me. This is what He means at the end of that verse 26. So He will be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. All of this is accomplished at the cross. God is displaying His character at the cross. Now, can I benefit from that? That's the, that's the last question. And if, if, if I can, how, how do I do that? Like, how do I move from being one who's under condemnation for my sin to one who's been justified? What, what, what do I do? How do I respond? And, and there's, there's just one way to benefit from what God is displaying at the cross, and it's faith. It's through faith. I mean, again, go back to, to verses 16 and 17. Uh, he says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. You see a lot of talk about faith and belief that's woven into those short, just three verses. And so what he's saying is this, this salvation is being offered to those who receive it by faith. Like it, it, it can only be accessed if you put your faith in what Christ has done on the cross. So this salvation is for everyone who believes. For everyone who believes. So what is faith? The Bible talks about it in different, different ways. Um, so one is it, it is receiving a gift. That's oftentimes my go-to. When I'm, I'm, I'm exhorting you to put faith in Christ, I'm like, receive it as a gift. But also the, the idea of trusting in or relying upon this grace that's been given to us at the cross, this, this salvation. It, it involves the, the emotions. It involves the mind. It, it, it involves the will, the whole person 
is involved. This is why in Romans 10, he'll say, you believe in your heart. That's not just an emotional thing. That's kind of how, what, we, what we think, especially on Valentine's Day. But it's, it's really about the whole person, the mind, the will, the emotions being engaged in the exercise of faith. If I say I have faith that Tommy Moore can preach sermons, right? And I have maybe some intellectual thoughts about that, that yes, I've thought about Tommy, I've thought about his gifts, I think he can preach sermons. Or maybe I have some emotional uh, feelings about that. When I think about Tommy preaching, I'm like, ah, that, yeah, that feels good. I, 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 I'm feeling like Tommy could really preach a sermon, but I never let Tommy preach. I don't really have faith that Tommy can preach. I have some intellectual thoughts about it, which are important. It's not less than that, but it, but it is more than that. I have some emotional feelings about it, right? It's not less than that, but it's more than that in them. I would, I, to exercise faith in, in Tommy's preaching, I would say, Tommy, why don't you preach? And he will in a couple of weeks. I have faith that Tommy can preach. That's, for some of us, this is how we're engaging with the gospel. We have maybe some intellectual thoughts about it. We agree with it. We might even have some emotional feelings about it. That it makes us feel good when we think about it, or we feel warm toward it, but we've not yet fully yielded ourselves. That, that will part has not yet happened. We haven't really fully engaged in genuine faith in the gospel. Maybe today's your day. Maybe today's your day. Maybe you've thought enough, you've felt enough, and today you, you're like, I, I, I want to rely upon wholeheartedly the grace of the gospel, this salvation that God has worked for me at the cross. I want to trust in that. I want to receive that. I would encourage you to do that today, to go to God in prayer, receive that salvation that He has purchased for you. If you're in a place where you're like, I'm still not there yet. I, I'm, 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 I'm interested. I talked to somebody this week that was like that. I, I'm interested. I'm just not... I'm, I'm like, good, let's go. Like, think about it, read about it, read the scriptures, talk to people about it. And so you maybe want to go to our website, mercyhouse365.org slash respond. There's a little, a little thing that I've written that's uh, just a little, like a more thorough treatment of what is the gospel, how do I respond uh, to that gospel. But, but today could be your day to receive uh, Christ and His salvation. Um, Paul wants us to know that this, is, this has been God's way all along. This is not like something new that he just cooked up for the New Testament, right? And he quotes the book of Habakkuk, uh, Old Testament book. He says, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And at first glance, we might think, oh, that means really righteous people. They decide to live by faith, and that's good and right. Um, but if you read the rest of Romans, you, you pretty much can surmise that is not what Paul is saying. What he's saying is a righteous God has given the gift of righteousness to sinners like you and me, and we can access that by faith. And when we access it by faith, we, we literally are brought back to life. The righteous who've been made righteous by grace through faith are alive, and they've been made alive today, and they will be made alive tomorrow, they will be made alive in the life to come. 
If you're a Christian, you, you were rescued by the power of God in the gospel. If you are a Christian, you're being sustained right now by the power of God in the gospel. If you are a Christian, you will be sustained for eternity by the power of God through the gospel. That's power. That's power. That's how powerful this gospel is that's being displayed in the righteousness of God at the cross. Let's pray. God, we um, are so grateful for just your display of righteousness at the cross and what that means for us who, without that cross, would, would have uh, been standing before you only as judge and could have never, quote, justified ourselves. And yet, at that cross, you take, took care of the sin and the condemnation that we would have received at that judgment seat and instead gave us an opportunity to be justified. And so, Lord, I, I pray those that are, are, are still wrestling with this and whether or not they believe it and, and whether they uh, want to take that step to, to receive it as a gift, Lord, help them to, to see it, encourage them, um, give them people that can have those conversations with them if they need that, but to draw people to faith uh, today in this great salvation that you provided at the cross. But for those of us that we, we, we have that salvation, we've experienced that by grace through faith, Lord, help us to, to, to see it afresh this morning, this, this power being worked out through the gospel, even now. I mean, the fact that we're still a Christian this morning, it's, it's because of your power in the gospel, keeping us, saving us, maintaining us now and forever. And we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.